Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Great America Show. We're going to catch up on the latest absurdities in our body politic. We'll also be bringing you right up to date on the puppet president's antics and aggravations. We'll also be reaching for the stars in today's episode. I've invited the brilliant Harvard astrophysicist and astronomer, Professor Avi Loeb, to join us here today to explain, well, two extraordinary incidents and discoveries. A meteorite that hit the Earth in 2014 near Papua New Guinea and an interstellar object that passed through our solar system, the object named Oumuamua by the astronomers who discovered it back in 2017. You're going to find it fascinating. Both are objects that have been confirmed to have traveled from another solar system to ours, the first interstellar objects to be discovered, the first. Professor Loeb says they could well be, in fact, physical evidence of extraterrestrial life. We'll be taking up this fascinating story and this fascinating possibility of life beyond Earth with Professor Loeb here today. But let's first talk about intelligent life on Earth and some not so intelligent. The latter seems to be in greater abundance of late. Have you noticed? Certainly in Washington, D.C., particularly in the neighborhood of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. President Biden has refused to condemn the call for radical left pro-abortion activists to protest outside the homes of Supreme Court justices. CNN reports the activists have doxed the justices, releasing the home addresses of Republican-appointed justices. The tactics of the Marxist-left Dems are getting much closer to those of the transnational narco-cartels operating in Mexico. Their intimidation tactics are worsening, and only Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia has ordered up stronger security for justices who live in his state. The Biden regime has ordered a million barrels of oil drawn down from our strategic petroleum reserves for Europe for six months. Biden is shipping 180 million barrels of our oil stored for national emergencies to Europe to, as Mr. Biden put it, support the world economy. The Marxist authoritarian Biden is doing so, as has become his custom, without any authority whatsoever to ship oil from our reserves to other countries or country. No discussion, no debate, no protest from Republican Party leaders, if you can believe it. Enough idiocy in D.C. for one day, don't you think? Let's turn to intelligent life now, both here on this planet and the prospect of life on other planets, solar systems, and fascinating discoveries in science that elevate our hopes, our spirits, and minds. You may ask, what are my qualifications to be talking about such matters as the search for extraterrestrial life, UFOs, and more? Fair question. Let me share with you my sole credential for taking up those matters, joking with President Trump and asking him about transparency 
in government research of alien life. Here's the president giving me full authority in all such matters. But I've got one question as we conclude here, uh, because uh, I, uh, actually I, a lot of my friends are, are very concerned about uh, what the federal government is doing when it comes to uh, UFOs. So if I could uh, just ask you, uh, are we going to commit, uh, are you going to commit more resources to, to exploring uh, UFOs and open the documents uh, to the public? Well, I think you're the, probably in this country, you're the UFO expert. So I'm going to be totally guided by the great, <laughs> by the great Lou Dobbs. And I will tell you that uh, I'll do whatever you uh, ask me to do, including total transparency. And I got to tell you, there's probably some pretty good transparency needed there. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> well, Mr. President, I, I couldn't have asked for a better answer. Thank you. Thank you so much, and I'll be calling uh, uh, your office soon to, uh, to get that uh, underway. President Trump, with his great sense of humor, and I, of course, from that point on, have always referred to myself as the administration's UFO czar. We have with us today a man with so many credentials, it's breathtaking. Our guest is Harvard professor Abraham Avilov, a fascinating, brilliant scholar and scientist, Avi is not only an exceptional professor of astronomy at Harvard University, he's also director of the Institute for Theory and Computation in the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Professor Loeb is heading up a mission as well to recover from the floor of the Pacific Ocean the first interstellar meteorite to ever hit planet Earth and perhaps discover evidence of extraterrestrials. We're thrilled to have you with us, Professor Loeb. Welcome to The Great America Show. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. Professor, let's start with uh, a, this object that is at rest on the, uh, on the ocean floor that, as I understand it, uh, you want uh, to pick it up uh, through a magnet. Uh, it's very deep, uh, the waters there. Uh, give, us, give us a sense of what you're, you're proposing to do. Yeah, so it's uh, very similar to going to your backyard and finding an object that came from the street. And uh, uh, the Earth acts as a fishing net. Uh, it moves in its uh, orbit around the sun, and every now and then it collides with an object along its path. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, very often all of the fish that we collect are from the solar system. These are rocks that were part of the construction project of the planets. Um, they were just the Lego pieces that made up the planet. Uh, but uh, we found the very first object that collided with the Earth that came from outside the solar system. So how do we know that? Because government uh, sensors, part of a missile warning system, uh, measured the speed of this object when it burned up in the uh, lower atmosphere of the Earth. And and the speed was so high that when we went back in time and we could figure out that the object was never bound to the sun. It was moving at uh, about 40 miles per second relative to the sun at very large distances. So it was definitely not bound to the sun. And, um, and so uh, we wrote a scientific paper about it. And then uh, uh, a month ago, the government um, confirmed our conclusion. Um, there was a letter from the U.S. Space Command addressed to NASA saying that 
they agree with our conclusion at the 99.999% confidence they say that the object uh, originated from outside the solar system. It's an interstellar object. Now, you might think that, you know, you might think it's a rock uh, that came from another star, just like the rocks we found near near the sun. You know, these are nothing unusual, uh, except this one came from another star. But uh, the government also released the data on the light curve of the fireball. So when the object uh, enters the atmosphere, it starts uh, heating up as a result of the friction with the air. And when it gets to the lower atmosphere, very often a meteor just burns up. Uh, there is so much heat right. and stress on the object. And, and so uh, the government said that uh, at the 18.7 kilometers above sea level, uh, it exploded and uh, they actually measured the, how much light was emitted. And you can tell that there was about a quarter of the world consumption, about four terawatt of uh, power generated in that uh, event. Altogether, about 2% of the energy released in the Hiroshima atomic bomb. And uh, uh, the- I'm sorry, what, perc- what percent? 2%. 2%. 2%. Yeah, I mean, there are bigger objects that burn up, uh, usually rocks that burn up in the atmosphere that generate more than that. Um, um, there was an event uh, just a few years ago that uh, was about 10 times the Hiroshima bomb. So we do collide with rocks, and depending on their size, uh, you know, there is a, a large amount of energy in the explosion. And um, But this one was unusual in the sense that it moved very fast, so it came from outside the solar system, but also it burned up uh, relatively close to the ground, so it, it penetrated through the atmosphere, and that meant that it had a very uh, strong material. It was made of uh, something that is tougher than iron, actually. We calculated that. And so it's really mysterious, uh, both in terms of its composition, it seems to be an outlier, tougher than iron. And I should say iron meteorites are about 5% of the entire population of rocks that come from space. So only 120th. And this one is even tougher than the iron meteorites we've seen before. And it's the first one that we find from interstellar space. So why is the first one such an outlier? And moreover, it moved really fast, much faster than stars move relative to the sun in the vicinity of the sun. So altogether, it seems to be weird and interesting. And, um, and you know, I, I always think about the New Horizons, you know, this spacecraft that we launched to Pluto that will exit the mm-hmm. solar system. And imagine it in a billion years colliding with a planet and a habitable planet like the Earth and, and then uh, burning up as a meteor. And, you know, it would appear as an object burning up in the sky. But the if if you look for the fragments, if the astronomers on that planet a billion years from now would look would check the fragments, they would realize that they are made of some alloy of metals that uh, is not made naturally. It's it, it was artificial. New Horizons. We should so it, we should we should point out too that meteorites often uh, have nickel alloy all alloys of various kinds uh, for whatever the reason. Uh, Professor, if I could just interject here. The size of this uh, this meteor lying on the ocean floor, what do you estimate its size to be? Based on the amount of energy released, we, we estimate it to be about half a meter. And um, 
uh, of very tough material, tougher than iron or, or similar to iron. And then uh, when it was melted during the explosion, uh, it, it, it probably broke to pieces. We don't know because we haven't found them yet. But then uh, there was uh, probably a, a rain of droplets. Uh, so think about iron rain uh, landing on the ocean surface, creating a lot of steam. Uh, if you were to use an umbrella, it would not protect you <laughs> against right. those iron droplets. And then they would uh, sink to the bottom of the ocean, the, the ocean floor. And we can scoop them up. Uh, that was done before for other, other meteorites. And, and that's the, the exciting part because, you know, if we were to uh, find such an object in space and we wanted to have a space mission that will land on it and check its composition and so forth, that would cost more than a billion dollars. But to do it in the ocean, to scoop the ocean floor, that would cost less than a million dollars. So we are talking about a thousand times savings. We can put our hands on the material that made this object that came from outside the solar system uh, for less than a million dollars. And we are currently planning this expedition um, on a ship. Uh, hopefully it will be done before the end of 2023. Uh, I still need to get the million dollars, but that's not a lot of money. Uh, and uh, and it will be really exciting because imagine if we find that it was made of some exotic materials that you don't find in nature, um, and and it looks as if it was artificial. What do you to that? What do you estimate uh, the weight? Uh, let's just make an assumption that just before impact or before it became iron rain, as you put it, what do you? What do you expect the density to be, the weight of this uh, uh, foot and a half wide object? Right. So uh, about uh, 500 kilograms or so, uh, or, or a ton, half a ton. Uh, the thing is, um, the density is probably about eight uh, grams per cubic centimeter. So a little more than iron. Um, that's what we estimate. Um, but uh, we don't know. We, we simply don't know. We, we will have to scoop the ocean floor and figure it out. Now, the way to do it is to drop down a sled with uh, a magnet and then uh, sweep the, the ocean floor. And it's sort of like mowing the lawn. There is a region of, of about 10 kilometers in size uh, that we have to go back and forth, back and forth. It will take us a week or so, and then we will figure out you know, we'll collect all the fragments. We will also probably have a remotely operated vehicle that goes on the ocean floor and uh, takes a video and sees if there is anything unusual. By the way, it's very easy to find such fragments, even if their size is less than a millimeter, less than the head of a pin, because the ocean floor, you know, is very deep there. It's about, uh, uh, it's, it's about a mile deep near Papua New Guinea, uh, right. Manus Island. And um, it's about 100 miles away from Manus Island in Papua New Guinea. And by the way, the government of Papua New Guinea um, is now um, um, considering approving our, our expedition. We, we asked them to, and, and they seem to be very uh, cooperative. Um, so the, the point is that uh, the ocean floor is mostly mud and uh, you know sea sand and things that are relatively uniform. And uh, it's very easy to identify unusual fragments that landed on this muck if if this the, the question uh, the question occurs naturally uh, from what you're saying uh, 
if you want to pick this up with with magnets, uh, and this has density beyond that of of iron, uh, what makes makes you think that it will respond to the magnet? Well, that's that's an excellent question. Well, uh, in the past, when uh, people tried to collect fragments from meteorites, explosions similar to the one I mentioned, it was very uh, effective. I mean, they were able to do that with a magnet simply because the fragments have usually enough uh, iron or other metals to be attracted, and sea sand does not, so it's easy to separate. But we don't know what this object was made of, and, and you, you raise an excellent question. So that's why we will have a video camera uh, along with uh, lights uh, surveying the, the ocean floor at the same time as we are trying to collect those fragments. And, you know, I would be really delighted if there was something, a big piece of it left behind. And I actually wrote a commentary about the New Horizons, this uh, spacecraft that NASA launched uh, uh, a decade and a half ago towards Pluto. And uh, they put actually uh, a box in it uh, that carried 30 grams of the ashes of Clyde Tambau. And just imagine this spacecraft burning up in the atmosphere of another planet, and then the box landing at the bottom of the ocean and the extraterrestrials finding it, those astronomers there. And, um, you know, they would be very disappointed because what are ashes? They are no different from the ashes of a cigarette. And so they would say, well, uh, this there is this human civilization that tried to commemorate a person. Um, the, uh, the person is, by the way, Clyde Tambau, who discovered Pluto. And they destroyed the genetic information about that person in the form of ashes to commemorate that person. That makes little sense. And we don't want anything to do with this uh, destructive uh, civilization. We don't want to contact them. It... it... This rock lying on the bottom of the ocean or rock, it came from outside our solar system. You have all sorts of uh, calculations, mathematic calculations for speed, velocity, uh, density, weight, and projections. Does that go so far as when you look at this, the velocity of this thing, which is extraordinary, how could it be moving that fast? You said it was unbound from the sun. It's not responding to the gravitational pull of our, our central star. Uh, and, and what is it responding to? What gave it that velocity? What mass is there out there that would send this thing hurtling uh, through space uh, from another, another solar system? That's an excellent uh, question. It, it, it was moving outside the solar system twice as fast as typical stars move. And uh, that makes it uh, an outlier also in, in terms of its speed, not just the composition. Uh, it represents maybe uh, less than a few percent of, of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun. Now, um, you have to understand that in order for it to get such a high speed, it either uh, needs to originate from a star that happens to be moving that fast, and that means likelihood of less than a few percent, or it should have originated very close to the parent star. So if you, in order to kick it at that speed that it, it had outside the, the solar system, you need it to originate from within uh, the orbit of Mercury around the sun, because only there you have those kinds of speeds of uh, 40 miles per second uh, that 
you could deliver to an object such gravitationally, such that it will be ejected with such a high speed relative to the local population of stars. There is another possibility that it came from far away where, you know, stars are moving relative to us much faster. But the point is we don't see stars moving relative to the sun that fast very often. Most of the stars moving relative to the sun are moving at half the speed of this object. So it's really intriguing. It's an outlier in terms of its speed. It's an outlier in terms of its composition. I should say the reason it's intriguing is because it's the first one that we find. And then there was another one that was found called Oumuamua in 2017. And I wrote a whole book about it uh, because that one was found in space. It was the size of a football field, uh, an object that came from outside the solar system, discovered about four years later after this meteor, and also looked very weird. It didn't look like a comet, didn't have a cometary tail, didn't look like an asteroid, appeared to be flat in its shape, and was pushed away from the sun by some mysterious force. And, you know, I wrote a whole book called The Extraterrestrial, arguing this is an unusual object. This right. is an outlier. It could be artificial in origin. So I'm saying the, two of the, two, the first two objects that we found from outside the solar system appear to be weird. So just imagine walking on the street and you see the first two people that you see are weird. They do not look like you know, the, the the citizens of your country, uh, they came from another country and they look really weird. So that says that we are missing something. Maybe, you know, maybe these are artificial. Maybe we, I mean, we should get more data. And of course, that that's why we are doing this expedition. Well, uh, Amuamua is uh, in itself a, a remarkable uh, discovery. Uh, we... We have the experience. How fast was it moving through space oh, compared so to, to, the, to the one that you've uh, certified as being interstellar? Um, relative to the sun, it was moving at uh, half the speed, but, but that was unusual in a different way. Oumuamua was actually in the so-called local standard of rest, which is the rest, the, the frame of reference that you get to when you average over all the stars in the vicinity of the sun. So uh, uh, it was at rest in that frame, just like a parked car, a car that is parked in a parking lot, not moving at all. And we were moving relative to it because the sun moves relative to the local standard of rest, like any other star. Only one in 500 stars uh, are so much at rest. Uh, in that frame as Oumuamua was. So the, the peculiarity, the oddity of Oumuamua was that in the local standard of rest, it wasn't moving. And why would it be there if all the stars are moving relative to that frame? And so that was the unusual thing about that. It was the size of a football field, very big. Uh, and I should say NASA never launched a, a spacecraft as big as a football field. Uh, but it launched many more that are small, uh, half a meter, like the one that, that describes this meteor. So we're sort of tiptoeing up to this. What are the, what is your thinking as a scientist uh, and a brilliant scientist studying space, uh, studying all of these planets and stars, uh, heavenly bodies? You're fascinated with this. Does that also... Well, what are your speculative uh, ideas that have occurred to you about whether this might be uh, 
extraterrestrial itself uh, and be driven by some force that we don't understand or by intelligence that we have never detected. Yeah, so I think the fundamental mistake we are making is not to be modest. Uh, we keep thinking that we are uh, special, unique, privileged, um, and perhaps the pinnacle of creations, uh, you know, and uh, that's the biggest mistake because in my view, uh, Albert Einstein was probably not the smartest scientist that ever lived since the Big Bang. We now know that half of the sun-like stars have a planet the size of the Earth, roughly at the same separation. So, And most stars form billions of years before the sun. So there were, there were probably scientists that were smarter than Einstein that lived a billion years ago on another planet around another star. And the civilization that benefited from their wisdom uh, probably sent uh, equipment to space, probes. And some of these probes might be around us. And it's not a philosophical question whether they exist. You know, people have this, make this mistake of arguing about it and saying, oh, it's an extraordinary claim to think that there is something more intelligent than we are. You know, that's the approach that my daughters had when they were at home at a young age. And then I took them to the kindergarten and they found smarter kids on their block. And of course they didn't like this idea, but uh, if you don't look through your windows, you, you will never figure out that you have neighbors if you keep claiming that you're special. and you. So I think that's the mistake we are making. And only over the past decade, we started uh, having the capability of detecting objects in our backyard, you know, like Oumuamua. That, that was not possible a decade ago or before that. Um, and only recently, we are able to see those things, uh, the size of a football field reflect from the reflection of sunlight. And then the meteor, you know, again, only now we, we recognize that there are meteors from interstellar origin that are half a meter in size that we should look for. So uh, it's really a new world for us to discover. And we just need to be open-minded uh, and modest because I don't think we are the smartest kid on, on the block. And if, you know, if I ha can have a wish, I'm, I'm 60 years old now, and if I have a wish, it's to press a button on a piece of technology that came from another civilization. Uh, it may say iPhone 60, you know, and it would be really interesting to see what it can do. Uh, but also, you know, if, if that cannot be granted, at the very least, I want to find the fragments uh, of an object that used to be technological that tell me, you know, that there are there is another intelligence out there because, you know, I'm... One reason I seek intelligence in space is because I don't often find it here on Earth. I, I, I would love to, to see what this produces, because you clearly have an idea that this is more than a rock laying on the ocean. You clearly believe uh, Muamua was uh, something more. We, you measure forces, you measure uh, velocities. It, it, anything and, and scientists are drawn to anomalies straightforwardly because of the, the, the you know scientists are always the most curious among us and there are lots of anomalies here right. is there enough of an anomaly in these two interstellar objects uh near earth objects uh, if you prefer that suggest to you that there's a reason for hopes to rise that we we could be near uh, near realizing 
that there is a neighbor somewhere. I think so. I think it's intriguing enough for us to seek more evidence. And it's exciting. Uh, you know, experts that are used to um, studying rocks all their lives uh, would argue it's a rock of a type that they've never seen before. But they would be no different than a cave dweller that goes out and finds a cell phone and argues the cell phone is a rock of a type that they've never seen before. Um, so to me, it's really... Uh, the task uh, 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 that, that we face is to first check if the objects we find from space uh, are natural, whether they are made of a composition that is familiar, like a rock or something else that is familiar to us, or ISIS, uh, or uh, something else. And if, it, if it's not natural, the other question is, is it human-made? And if the answer to both questions is no, um, you know, we don't really need to reverse engineer what we find. We just need to figure out that it's not natural and not human-made. And that would be just like the cave dweller pressing a button and realizing that, that the cell phone records his voice and it's not really a rock, okay? Uh, beyond that, trying to reverse engineering, engineer the object that you find uh, depends on uh, the technological gap between us and them. If the gap is too big, we will never figure it out. You know, just think about a cave dweller going to New York City, seeing all the gadgets. It will become, when, when that cave dweller comes back home, uh, it will become a myth. It will, uh, will the, 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 uh, the family of the cave dweller will never be able to reverse engineer the gadgets that he saw in New York City. Uh, but my point is that at the very least, we can tell that there is something else out there. And that by itself would be a major event in human history. So let's just be open-minded uh, about it. And, you know, it's just trying to figure out the unknown. And I think that's what makes life exciting. I think it, I think it is indeed. And uh, that's for all of us. Uh, discovery is always, uh, to me, life-affirming. Uh, and, and the stuff of space... It makes me always think uh, in, in spiritual terms as well. Right. In that regard, if I may ask, do you believe in God? Do you believe this is his design? Uh, or <laughs> do you believe it's something else? Well, that's very interesting. First of all, I should say space exploration is all about spirituality. I don't believe in a commercial uh, motivation for space exploration. I mean, even though uh, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos have business plans for space tourism, going to Mars, you know, I don't see it that way. It's not, uh, I mean, exploring the unknown is not about making money. It's uh, more about spirituality, figuring out something that you don't know. And uh, that's what should motivate us to uh, venture uh, eventually far out. Now, in terms of God, I really think that there is an opportunity for science and religion to come together. And uh, my point is that, you know, our notion of God is as an entity that can create life. If you go to the uh, Genesis in the Bible, mm -hmm. um, it's the entity that created the universe. Okay. Uh, that's in the first chapter. And uh, when, you know, when working on uh, modern physics, modern science, you know, we are getting close to the point where we will create life in our laboratories. And we can imagine 
creating a baby universe in the laboratory once we understand how to unify quantum mechanics and gravity. There are some scientific papers on that. So my point is a very advanced scientific civilization might appear to us like a good approximation to God, the way God was depicted in religious texts. And once we find it, it will be just like connecting the dots, uh, you know, because in principle, it's possible that we exist on this planet because someone seeded life on this planet. And in religious texts, it's a sign to God, but in fact, it may be an advanced scientific civilization. So the point is the two concepts might be similar. And by the way, I should say I find a lot of resonance with religious people. Uh, they find this quest for the unknown to be uplifting, much more so than uh, scientists, you know, colleagues, experts. The experts want me to uh, agree with them that everything on the sky is rocks. That's what they want. They want to say anything we find, any object we find must be a rock, I, even if it's a rock of a type that we've never seen before. Uh, however, uh, people that have uh, more spirituality are open-minded to, to the possibility that the unknown may reveal something new. I, I guess it, it speaks to my immodesty. Uh, that as you as you speak of uh, these uh, the prospect of a superior uh, life form somewhere, uh, I immediately think, wait a minute, we're human beings, and I think there's also a possibility that it would not be quite as advanced as us, and that we should be a little more, if you will, <laughs> confident in ourselves. Uh, and I, by the way, will be delighted to find either group. Uh, it, well, uh, it, it, you know, I tell my students uh, in, on the first day of class uh, at Harvard, I tell them half of you are below the median. And they are shocked. You know, students at Harvard think that you know, each of them thinks that they are at the top 2%. But it's a statistical fact that in any class, half of the students are below the median. There is no right. escape of that. And so when you speak about human civilization, I would guess we're probably somewhere in the middle of the distribution. Right. That would be my of the class, you know. So, of course, there are uh, other civilizations <coughs> much more primitive. I mean, we know about cockroaches and, 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 you know, crocodiles here on Earth that are not as smart as we are. We know about microbes. So it's possible that in on other planets, you know, it all ended up in crocodiles and that's it. So if we ever go there, we will see swamps full of crocodiles that are rather dumb. You know, that may be the case on many planets. But at the same time, I wouldn't be surprised if for half of them, we would find things far more advanced than we we can find in our civilization. So let me ask you the question uh, as we conclude here, Professor. Do you believe in UFOs? Um, I don't think, okay, I don't think it's a matter of belief because, and, and I don't think it's a matter of philosophical arguments. I think it's just a matter of getting good data. A high resolution image is all we need or a sample of the objects. Right. So, uh, you know, a thousand, a picture is worth a thousand words. In my case, a picture is worth 66,000 words, the number of words in my book. If I had a picture <laughs> of a muamua, I would never write the book. I don't need to write the book. Uh, you know, you can just show the picture. And, and by the way, I don't need to convince anyone else. If I have the picture, uh, I would be satisfied. That's it. I will go home, have dinner, and I will know the answer. So in terms of UFOs, you know, we are trying to collect that 
data that to get that image with the Galileo project that um, is currently uh, funded at two million dollars at Harvard University thanks to the generosity of uh, various uh, wealthy individuals that came to the porch of my home and were inspired by the vision of my book. Um, and uh, what we need is about a hundred million so we, I'm still working on it. When do you expect to uh, launch the mission to recover this interstellar visitor? Uh, we hope to do it before the end of 2023. And we have currently a partner uh, who actually was involved in the discovery of uh, the, the remains of the Titanic. Uh, but we also have another uh, potential partner. So the timing will depend on who we converge with, but it will definitely be before the end of 2023. That's wonderful news. And where can people go to keep uh, to stay up with the, your adventures uh, and your search? I have a professional website. Um, if you just Google Avi Loeb, A-V-I-L-O-E-B, Harvard University, I have a website where I have um, every few days I have a commentary that describes the latest updates. Uh, and moreover, uh, I had the Galileo project where we uh, do a scientific inquiry, a scientific research program uh, into the nature of these unidentified aerial phenomena or UFOs that you mentioned. We are now building the first telescope system on the roof of the Harvard College Observatory. It should be done in the coming months. I, I can't wait to see it. Uh, and uh, as, a, uh, as a Harvard alum, uh, I'm excited to see the, the improvement in the Cambridge skyline. Okay, that explains the quality of the all the programs that I watched uh, with you uh, as a commentator. Um, now I understand where it comes from. Uh, it's very it's very gratifying to to hear that you you graduated at Harvard. And I've got to give great credit to Minidoka Kali High School as well, Professor. You're very <laughs> kind. I appreciate it. It's been fascinating, and thank you for your time. I hope we can visit uh, frequently. Uh, what you're doing interests us all, whether Democrat or Republican or something in between or an outlier of all kinds. Uh, we all should be interested in, in your study uh, and your, and your uh, search uh, for discovery. Thanks so much, Professor. Professor Thanks. Avi Loeb of Harvard Thanks. University. Thanks for having me. Professor Avi Loeb, a great American. We'll be keeping you up to date here on his mission to find the interstellar meteorite on the Pacific Ocean floor and his search for evidence of extraterrestrial life. He's also the director of the Galileo Project. Just Google Galileo Project and Avi Loeb or Google Avi Loeb and Harvard to go to his website. Here with us tomorrow to take up more heavenly issues, Pastor Robert Jeffress to talk about the Supreme Court's ruling on Roe v. Wade, and it's important to this great nation and the American way of life. Pastor Robert Jeffress here tomorrow. Hope you will be too. Till then, God bless you, and God bless America.